Welcome to the study of God's Word, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, let's open our Bibles and study God's Word. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Go and open up your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 9. And uh, while you're tuning there, just going to say a couple of things. I'm so blessed to be here with you. Um, so blessed by those who um, I've grown to know better and better over the years here at this fellowship. Uh, none more than uh, Pastor Ed. Uh, he's, he is just an incredible blessing to me. He's a mentor of mine. Um, just an amazing man. Um, I'm so thankful for his ministry. I'm so thankful for Ian as well. He's a good friend of mine. Um, just, just great guys. You guys, I, I don't know if you know, but you're insanely blessed by the leadership here at this church. The, the faithfulness to the word um, that Pastor Ed brings every single week, um, the, the consistency um, of, of ministry here is just incredible. So I love Pastor Ed. I love um, Pastor Ian. Um, many, many good things to say about them. Not everyone's perfect. They do have their flaws. They are Dodger fans. So I don't know how much we can trust them. Um, but apart from that, apart, apart from that, there's a lot of good. Um, all right, guys. Well, thank you so much uh, for, for welcoming me uh, here this morning. I'm really excited to get into the Word with you this morning. So let's pray, and uh, we'll look at Acts chapter 9. <clears throat> Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful time that we get to gather together as your people. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that we are free in this country to be able to open your Word without fear of persecution without fear that uh, we're going to get closed down. And so we pray now, Lord, that as we look at um, Acts chapter 9, that you would speak mightily to your people, that you would lead us, that you would guide us, that you would direct us. Lord, even if we need it, we pray that you would rebuke us and convict us. We ask all of this because we don't want to gather together um, as, as a religious duty or religious obligation. We want spiritual pride and legalism to be the furthest thing away from this room. And so, Lord, we, we invite you in. I ask that we would be in a place where we would give our hearts fully to you. And if there's any area of our life that is off, any area of our life that we are harboring sin in and that we are refusing to give over to you, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us, that you would convict us, we pray against any distractions, uh, particularly those that we bring in, particularly the distractions that are running rampant in our mind, the worry, the fear, the concern that, that we have. We pray, Lord, that we'd be able to give it to you and that this morning we would experience you, that we would know that you are present in this place and that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would minister to our hearts through your word. We love you, Jesus, and it's your name that we pray. Amen. 
All right, well, Acts chapter 9, it's a great uh, section of Scripture. Um, In it, we have two main characters, uh, Saul, who is the villain-turned-hero, later to be known as the Apostle Paul, as many of you know, and then the unsung hero in our story, a guy by the name of Ananias. Let's begin Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. So that if he found any who were of the way, the way would just be the church, Christians, uh, Christ followers. That's how they were known in the first century as the way. Whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Verse 3. Verse 3, Paul's life changes. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We back up to verse 1, and we see it says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. In the original language, it's indicating there that with every breath Saul breathed, he breathed murderous threats against the church. Saul was the single-minded, focused type guy. That there's nothing else that he was concerning his mind with other than persecution of God's holy church. Not only did he want to persecute the church, but he was eager. Eager, just, just let this sink in. Eager to murder God's precious people. You know, when we look at uh, the life of many characters in the Bible, including Saul, we as Christians just G-rate things, right? And so we just G-rate his story. So later when Saul's writing and he's now the Apostle Paul, and he says that I am the chief sinner of all sinners, we, we go, okay, Paul, like, that's really sweet. You know, I mean, it's nice and humble of you to say you're the chief of all sinners, but I mean, come on, let's get real. Like, you're the Apostle Paul. You wrote, you wrote half of the New Testament. You're certainly not the chief of all sinners. And like, okay, I'm the chief of all sinners too. No, Saul actually was the chief of all sinners, murdering, imprisoning Christians just simply because they believe in the Lord Jesus. It tells us in verse 2, not only did he do this, but he also sought legal um, uh, provision to be able to do it. So Paul murdering and imprisoning Christians, it was actually legal for him to do that. I think it's a good uh, point to pause and just do a quick side um, note application that just because something's legal doesn't make it right. It was legal for Saul to take Christians out of their home, to bring them to Jerusalem, to put them on trial for their faith, And ultimately, those who didn't deny the faith to have them give their life for their love for Jesus Christ. Well, that's the case all the way until we get to verses 3 and 4. Saul was was on track to live his life dramatically opposed to Jesus Christ until he ran into the wall of Jesus. When Jesus says to him in verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Notice, me. He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting my faithful people? He says, why are you persecuting me? And the reason for that is because we as the church, we're known as the bride of Christ. 
We're known as a lot of things, right? We're known, we're known as a branch that abides in the vine. We're known as the body made up of all different, unique, individual members, but we make up one cohesive unit. But perhaps the greatest title that we are given as a church is the bride of Christ. And when you attack someone's bride, you're attacking the groom. And I would even make the case that you're attacking the groom more than if you attacked him himself. And so by attacking uh, the bride of Christ, Jesus says, you're persecuting me. That tells me that when we are persecuted for our faith, Jesus feels it. It's not that, that he knows it. It's not just that when you get made fun of for, for your faith, when you have liberty stripped away from you because of your faith, that he's aware of it. It's more than that. Jesus feels the persecution that you and I go through. I hope it's not too much of a stretch of application to suggest to you. It's not that Jesus just feels the persecution, but I believe that Jesus feels our pain. Perhaps you're in a season of grief. You're in a season of mourning. And what happens when you're in those seasons? You feel isolated. You feel completely and totally alone. And Jesus would say to you this morning, not only does he know, not only is he aware of your situation, but he also feels the pain. Well, we read Saul's reaction in verse 5. And he said to the Lord, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then the New King James has this, this next phrase. It says, It is hard for you to kick against the goads. The go, a goad was just an agricultural um, tool. It was used by the farmer to jam into the, the ox anytime the ox would get offline, um, trying to plow in a straight, straight line. If it started to veer, the, the farmer would use it to prod the ox to get him back um, focused again. Uh, there's another type of goad that was actually attached to the yoke that you would put around the ox. And anytime the ox would stubbornly kick, it would jam into the ox's hamstring. Now, let me ask you, if something jammed into your hamstring every time you kicked, what would you not do anymore? You wouldn't kick, right? Like it's, the, the point of it is, is to break one's will. And so Jesus says to Paul, it's hard for you. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. In other words, Saul, I've been prodding you. I've been trying to get you back focused, back on, on, on the right track. I want you doing my will. And every time I have tried to get your attention, every time I've tried to capture your soul, you have kicked. And it's painful every time. Because you are suppressing the truth for a lie. I believe there's several goads that Jesus used in Saul's life. I believe in Acts chapter 7, as the, the people were stoning Stephen, um, as he uh, gave this wonderful uh, sermon, they, they are struck, they're convicted, and, and rather than turn to the faith, they, they turn in fury towards Stephen and throw a bunch of rocks at him until he dies. As they're doing that, Saul's watching on, and he sees what we're told by Luke in Acts chapter 7. Um, Stephen's face begins to shine like the face of an angel. But it just wasn't his face that was divine. It was also his words that sounded just like heaven. As he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Sound like anybody? Saul, watching, he saw the face of an angel, and he heard the voice of Jesus. While his team, his community, his group was so incensed by the truth and by the love that Stephen was proclaiming 
that they murdered the man. You're telling me that didn't impact Saul? I guarantee you, Jesus was using that to say, Saul, do you see this? You're going the wrong way. And what did Saul do? He kicked and it hurt. How about later in Saul's life? History tells us that he was an incredible student of the Old Testament scriptures. I guarantee you, as he studied the scriptures, he saw the fourth person in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He, he saw the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. He read of the crucifixion in Psalm 22. And in each time, Jesus was drawing Saul to himself, saying, Saul, you know you're on the wrong team. You know you're pursuing the wrong thing. And I'm bringing you to myself. And what did Saul do? He kicked. And every single time, it hurt. I wonder how many of you, that's your testimony. That the Lord prodded you. And he drove you till you finally reached your breaking point and you stopped kicking. I wonder how many of you hearing my voice right now, the Lord is in the midst of prodding you, bringing you into relationship with himself. My pastor used to say, a lot of you have a drug problem. You were drugged to church. I know. It it didn't give me any laughs there either. Um, But still, I like to bring it up. And I always point out that it's not my joke just to be safe. Um, it's, it's Pastor Robert Furrow. If you, if you have a complaint, you can email him, robert at calvarytucson.com. Anyways, you didn't want to be here this morning, but to appease a family member, uh, to, to, to perhaps pursue a girl or a guy who you know goes here, you came, and the Holy Spirit is prodding you. You hear the Word of God being preached. You listen to the Word being read, and the Holy Spirit, Jesus, He's, he's just plucking at the strings of your heart. You have the choice. You can respond or you can continue to kick. Praise God, Saul finally responded here. And what does he say? He asked the first question, who are you, Lord, in verse 5, then verse 6. So he trembling and astonished. You would be too if Jesus knocked you off your high horse. And said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And Jesus said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Saul asked Jesus two questions in this whole encounter. The first question was, Lord, who are you? He's, he's, he's making sure he knows the identity of the person who's speaking to him. And I think that's a really great question for every person to ask. It's specifically of Jesus. Jesus, who are you? Now it's been said, not by me, but it's been said that Jesus is either one of three options, a liar, lunatic, or Lord. He's either a liar where he is saying something about himself he knows is not true. He's a lunatic because he's believing something about himself that isn't true. Or thirdly, he's Lord. That what he claims about himself actually is true. But there's an option that the world always says about him that can't be an option. People say, well, Jesus, he was a really good guy. He was a really great moral teacher. I'm glad you have Jesus, um, but you know what? He's not for me. Listen, Jesus was not, he was one of those three, liar, lunatic, or Lord. He was not just some good guy. He was not some just good moral teacher. If, If you think that, you've never read the words of Christ. What did Jesus say? If your right hand causes you to sin, cut that puppy off and cast it far from you. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it far from you. Does that sound like the the message of a good teacher? He also says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one 
comes to the Father except through me. If, if he's just a good guy, then that is a very cruel and arrogant thing to say, right? He's, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or a Lord. I believe he's Lord, and I believe most all of us in this room believe he's Lord. Saul got to the point where he goes, okay, fine, I'll give it to you. I'm going to say you're Lord. So what does he do? He asks the next question, Lord, what do you want me to do? Now we're in the church. We go, you know what? I get it. Jesus is Lord. I'm on the same page. But it's this next question that we have a lot of difficulty with. Lord, what do you want me to do? What we instead say is, Lord, here is what I want you to do, right? Here's what I want you to do for me. I want you to take me out of my trial. I want you to bless me. I want that promotion. I want, I want, I want. Jesus the genie, baby, right? That, if he's the Lord, then our response to him is that of submission. And we come to him, we say, Lord, I submit to you. Whatever you want me to do. Even if it's something I don't want to do. It's a great place for Saul to be. And it's a great place for Christians to be. We go on, verses 7 through 9. We we get some great context of the story. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground And when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Now, verse 9, don't just read it in passing. Really think about it. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. I think most of us, when we think of the conversion of Saul, we just go, yeah, Jesus appeared to him and he got saved. And, you know, he became the Apostle Paul and he wrote half the New Testament. That's great. But I think we forget what what an incredible thing this is that Saul actually converted. Because Saul was moving so ferociously in one direction. He was pursuing his entire life, um, the, the climbing up of the, the pharisaical corporate ladder, if you will. Striving to be a member of the Sanhedrin. Many people believe he got there. The Sanhedrin is just the 70 ruling elders of uh, the, the class of the Pharisees. He was moving hard in one direction. Perhaps, if he was a member of the Sanhedrin, he was married. Perhaps he had a family. We know from the writings in 1 Corinthians that he no longer was married, if he was. You see, I believe Saul sat there, and he was really weighing his options. If I choose to follow after Jesus, whom now I know to be true, I have to give up everything. Everything. I have to give up my career that I have literally worked my entire life for, I have to give up my family. I have to give up my friends. I have to give up my entire community. I believe that this is still a hook that Satan keeps people on because they're in a community. They identify in this community. And if they get saved, they feel as if they will be ripped from that community and they go, I can't do it. I believe Jesus, but I'm not gonna give up all that I have going for me in my life. I believe that's what Saul was doing as he was weighing things out not eating, not drinking for three days. And then in steps, verse 10, the unsung hero of the story, and I hope to make a case to you by the end that all of us will have this guy as a a spiritual hero of ours. It's a guy by the name of Ananias. Read with me verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. That's it. How do you like that for an introduction, right? We don't know who he is. All we know about Ananias is there was another Ananias who was unfaithful and the Holy Spirit killed him. 
That's all we know. When we talk about Ananias, people assume we're talking about Ananias and Sapphira. We forget about this guy because he's an unsung hero who did things behind the scenes. So there's this guy, Ananias. And to him, verse 10, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, don't you love this? And he said, here I am, Lord. If this was the book of Acts of Eric, Susa, the preacher from Jacksonville, it would say, and the Lord showed up in a vision and said, Eric, and Eric screamed like a little girl and ran out the room, right? (laughs) Think about it. How often does Jesus appear to you in a vision? I would assume most all of us would say either never or almost never. We read this and it just seems like it's just another day for Ananias. Like, oh, what's up, Jesus? What's up, Lord? Right? Just here I am. I'm ready. Like, just do whatever you want. I think Ananias, first of five reasons why he's an unsung hero is because he is immediately available. Jesus shows up and he goes, here I am. I will do whatever you want me to do. And I think the majority of the church is in that place. I really do. I think if we took, if we took a, a anonymous poll here and we asked everybody, would you be willing to do what God wants you to do? I think the vast majority of us would say, absolutely. But where the rubber really meets the road is when we hear what Jesus wants us to do, and it's something that we do not want to do at all. Listen to what Jesus calls Ananias to. Verse 11. So the Lord said to him, let's just follow along, arise and go. Ananias is like, all right, well, I'm tired. It is the middle of the night, but sure. I can get up and I can go. It says, arise and go to the street called Straight. He's like, that's perfect. I don't even need Google Maps. Like, I know exactly where that is. That's right next to Bendy Boulevard, Straight Street. Got it. I'm with you, Lord. Like, I will get up and I will go. Where? Inquire in the house of Judas. He's like, I, I love Judas. He's not the bad Judas, not the uh, evil Judas, right? Like, this is, this is a good Judas. It's a common name. He's like, I know where Judas lives right there on Straight Street, Lord. I'm trekking with you. I'll do whatever you call me to do. It says, inquire for the one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. It's at that point where the record does that little skip, like, right, in the story. He's like, wait, wait, what do you mean Saul of Tarsus? Like, did you misspeak? <laughs> because Saul of Tarsus is the one when we go to church that they tell us, avoid that guy. This would be like, Going back to World War II, you're Bonhoeffer. Jesus appears to you in a vision and says, go to this street and there you'll find a guy by the name of Adolf Hitler, for he is praying. You go, you most certainly must not have meant Adolf Hitler because he is the most evil man on the planet. That is what Ananias would have thought about Saul of Tarsus. Make no mistakes about it. This is not an easy task. We go on. Verse 12, and in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him so that he might receive sight. If, I, if I'm Ananias, I go, so what? I don't care what he's seen. I'll tell you what I know about him. Go on, Ananias. Such a good way to respond to the Lord, isn't it? So Ananias said, Lord, another other uh, synonyms for the term Lord, governor, decision maker, Master, Lord, I come to you. I have heard from many about this man. How much harm he has done, notice, to your saints in Jerusalem. And here in Damascus, he has authority from the chief priests to bind all, not some, not many, but all who call 
on your name. What is Ananias doing? He's just informing God. Just in case, Lord, you are unaware, let me make you aware of some of the details. How often do we do this? God calls us to something that we don't want to do. And so we make him aware of the details. We sit there and we go, yes, Lord, I will be used by you however you want as long as you want me preaching in the pulpit. I will be used by you however you want as long as you you call me to sing it on the worship team. But the Holy Spirit comes in. He he pricks at your heart and says to you, hey, they, they need a lot of help with the kids down in kids ministry. And so then we go about informing the Lord. Lord, governor, decision maker, master, I come to you humbly, but I want you to know, I know you're calling me to kids ministry, but Lord, a couple things you need to know. Number one, I hate kids. Actually, that's all I got. That's the only thing that I, I wanted to inform you of, Lord. You cannot call me to that ministry. We're informing God. That's exactly what Ananias, his wheels are spinning. And don't you love how Jesus responds? Read with me. Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go. Ananias, shh. I know. I am fully aware of the words that I just said. Go. For he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name. Notice, before Gentiles, that's all non-Jewish people, kings, it's all people of authority, and to the children of Israel. That would be all Jewish people. In other words, he is my chosen vessel to go and bear my name to the entire world. The second reason Ananias is an unsung hero is because he was not a victim. How would a victim respond to this? (laughs) Wait a second. He? He is your chosen vessel? Are you kidding me? The guy who is pulling people out of homes, imprisoning them, and enjoying the fact that they are dying, he's your chosen vessel. What about this guy? Huh? Do you not remember just minutes ago you showed up and said, Ananias, and I said, here I am, Lord. Like, did you forget that, Jesus? What's wrong with me? That's what victims do. Victims see what, uh, what God is doing in other people, and they go, why can't that be me? Why don't I get that promotion at work? Why don't, why don't I have good kids? <laughs> why, why can't I be the pastor? Why can't I be on the worship team? Why can't I get this? Why can't I get that? Ananias didn't do that. Thank God he didn't cut uh, Jesus off because Jesus goes on to say in verse 16, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Guys, just listen to some of the things that Paul went through. Um, Later in his life, he wrote to the Corinthian church, and what Jesus said here absolutely came about. Great calling, great suffering attached. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. Paul writes and says this, In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often, from the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. That's the same flogging that Jesus received once. Paul received five times for the faith. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often. Now this word's about to get laborious, so just bear with me. In perils, um, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, in toils often, 
Many of us would be out with just this line, in sleepless nights often. No, I'm done. Call somebody else to it. In hunger and thirst and fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides all other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for the churches. Paul suffered greatly for his calling. And so at that point, when you hear all that, all the victims go, okay, never mind, call him. <laughs> I don't want that. Let's allow the Lord to choose who the Lord wants in where, in the positions he wants them, rather than complaining, fussing, whining about where he has us in life. We go on verse 17, we read one of the greatest verses, I believe, in the New Testament. And Ananias, we find three reasons why he's an unsung hero here, went his way and entered the house. And laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. The third reason why Ananias is an unsung hero is because he obeyed even when it was insanely difficult. You know, we get into the, to the pattern and the tendency to just read through the Bible kind of quickly. Um, we do our devotions every day. We read the Bible every day. And so sometimes it can get monotonous. It can get laborious. And so we just go through real fast. But I want to camp out real quick on the, the first line in verse 17. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. I want you to stop and think about how incredibly difficult of a task that was. To get up out of bed, to walk to the street called Straight, to go up to Judas's house, and to know behind that front door, there's a man who has full authority to bind me, to take me from my family, down to Jerusalem, to try me for my faith, and eventually to take my life. You tell me that's easy? I mean, can't you imagine? He's walking there. He's going to uh, Judas's house. And as he's going, he's just like second-guessing everything. Like, <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe that wasn't Jesus. <laughs> maybe that was Satan. <sighs> he appears as an angel of light, doesn't he? Of course it wasn't Jesus. Stupid me. I'm going to go back to bed. Right? He gets to the house. He's looking at the door. And he's like, if I go in there, my life, for all intents and purposes, is over. He walked up to the door. Like, I imagine him going, no. <laughs> like, kind of walking away, like pacing in the front yard. Finally, Ananias gets the courage to open that front door and to go in. And what does he find? He doesn't find an impressive specimen of a man. He doesn't find someone who can physically threaten him. Instead, what he sees is a pathetic sight. He sees Saul cowering in a corner, blind and emaciated from lack of food and lack of water. And here's what I think he was tempted with. I think he was tempted to fear before he walked in. But I think once he walked in and saw that pathetic sight, he's no longer tempted with fear. Now I think he's tempted with bitterness, hatred, revenge, right? This man was the guy who was responsible for the death of many people that Ananias most likely knew. I would even suggest to you it's possible that Saul drug off many of Ananias' friends and even perhaps family, family members. How would you respond if you saw the person who was guilty to take your family away from you 
sitting there alone and you could do whatever you wanted. You could cause any harm to that person. I think Ananias now has a different struggle. But we read on in verse 17. And when Ananias went his way and entered the house, notice, in laying his hands on him. Fourth reason he's an unsung hero is because he was sensitive. He was sensitive to his Savior. He was sensitive to the situation. And I think most importantly, he was sensitive to the sinner. Again, if God called us to lay hands on him, I think a lot of us would have been willing to lay hands on him, just in a little bit more of a violent way, right? But Ananias goes in, and he lays his hands on him. Can I Just feel the energy in that room. He knows exactly who this man is, and he knows what God is calling him to. And as he's getting close to laying hands on him, I don't think it was easy. I don't think he was like, what's up, Judas? Hey, Saul. All right, here we go. I, I think it was a, a struggle. I think this was very difficult for him to come in, but he did it. And what's more, we read the fifth and final reason why he's an unsung hero. He says the first two words that Saul ever heard from the lips of a Christian after his encounter with Jesus, brother Saul. Ananias is an unsung hero because he saw people the way that God sees them. These two words are so significant. First, brother, what is he saying? He's saying, you now are a part, not not of a group, not of a community. You are a part of the family. The family. What's more, he said his name, Brother Saul. In other words, you are a part of my family, and I know exactly what you have done. I know all the sins that you have committed against the family, and yet I still will welcome you in. I believe that this is the final goad in Saul's life. And it's through the ministry of Ananias that Saul ultimately gets saved. I think as he's sitting there, he's debating about what to do, that when he feels the love in Ananias' hands, when he hears the love in Ananias' voice, not being able to see, but being able to feel and hear, he says, if this is what the church is about, then I'm in. And you will note that Jesus called a man like Ananias, one who is sensitive, one who is willing, one who is ready, one who was not a victim and didn't complain. And you'll note who he didn't call. He didn't call someone who was bitter. Do you know why? Because he couldn't. He didn't call someone who was legalistic because they would have held it against Paul. He didn't call, and I want you to remember I'm a guest, (laughs) so take it easy. He didn't call the nitpickers among us, those who are always looking for all of the faults to point out and then to to rise above that person and feel superior because they're in sin, they're wrong, they have all of these mistakes. If you would have called a nitpicker or a fault finder, they would have come in, they would have laid hands on him, they would have said, Brother Saul, listen, now that you're saved, you need to change your life, okay? You have to stop killing people. Christians don't murder, so stop it. Do you hear me? Right? That's what they would have done. Ananias was so sensitive to the Spirit that there was not one word of correction to Saul. All there was was full embrace and love. Do not misunderstand me. I'm not saying that there's not a Christian standard that we're to live by. 
Clearly, as we read this book, there is. But please do understand me. It's the Holy Spirit who impresses that upon our heart, isn't it? If someone reached out to you and asks you, yes, talk to them. But why, why do we take it upon ourselves to be the Holy Spirit? To, to, to go searching for sins in other people's lives? Did the Holy Spirit not convict you and change you? <laughs> Most certainly he can do that with somebody else. Ananias was so incredible because he was so sensitive and he was willing to do the difficult thing. And guys, I'm going to leave you with a challenge. We have one more verse to read, but I'm going to leave you with a challenge. Could you have heard Jesus' voice that day? Could you have been given this ministry? Or instead, is there bitterness? Is there legalism in your life? Is there this nitpicking attitude, this, this spiritual pride to where God never would have called you? If so, I want you to hear me very carefully. You are limiting the ministry that God could call you to. Because he would say, this is far too important of a task to call a legalist to, to call a fault finder or a nitpicker to. And I want to encourage you, because listen, I'm going to be completely transparent. As I was doing this, as I was putting this study together, I said to the Lord, you could not have called me because I'm far too bitter. There are certain people who, if I'm going to be completely honest with you, I want them to know that they're wrong. I'm talking about non-Christians. I want them to know they're wrong, and I want them to know that I'm right, but I don't necessarily want them to convert. The Lord had had to do an incredible work in my heart, and I hope that you can be vulnerable enough to say to the Lord, God, any area of my life is not off limits to you. And if I have been doing this wrong, I pray that you would change me today. Because I don't know about you, in the current culture of our world, don't you think we need a lot more Ananiases and a whole lot less legalistic, fault-finding, nitpicking, bitter Christians? I think we need a lot more people like this. And listen, my proof that this is the final goad in Saul's life, we read verse 18. Immediately, there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. I believe, again, the ministry of Ananias broke Paul in the best way possible, to where he said, I'm done. If this is possible, Saul was fully aware of what he had done. He was fully aware of the offense that he had caused this man, and yet this man was willing to completely and totally embrace and accept him. And Saul said, I'm done kicking. I'm all in. And I believe we will see a massive revival if all of us can be more like Jesus in Ananias. Amen? All right, guys, um, we're going to take communion. Feel free to stand or sit. Um, we're gonna, I'm going to call the worship team back up. They're going to sing a song, take communion together, and we'll uh, conclude with some more worship. Father, thank you so much for your word of God. Thank you so much for the conviction, for the encouragement, for the direction. And we ask you and pray, Lord, that all of us will be men and women who are willing to be used by you like Ananias that if there's any of us in this room who are holding on to bitterness, that we're harboring legalism, religious pride, I pray that we will all drop it. 
and that we will serve you. That we will no longer foolishly limit the scope of the ministry that you could call us to. God, we want to lay everything completely and totally open, honest, transparent before you. And we ask that you would do a mighty work in our life. We ask now, Lord, that as we are about to take communion corporately, that you would ready our hearts, that we would feel the gravity and the weight of our sin, but that we would also feel the gratitude, the thankfulness towards you for all that you've done. We love you, Jesus, and it's your name that we pray. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.